Hello, and welcome to the special Christmas bonus episode of Birdcast. I hope you're having as good a time as circumstances allow. This is a recording of the Halloween Live episode that we did as part of the Rural Gothic series of events, organised by Howard and Mark Norman of the Folklore Podcast. Here we look at Hammer's The Witches, with one-man horror canon, writer and actor Jonathan Rigby. We examine the origins of the film, how much of Nigel Neal's tropes show through, where The Witches is essentially an episode of Midsummer Murders, and what does Stitchamathia mean? Thank you very much, Mark. And once again, thank you for the invite. And welcome to this very special live edition of, of Birdcast. I would wish you a happy Halloween or happy summer, but I think um, as we're dealing with Nigel Neal and Manx, um, I wish you a happy hop to May or a top hop to Na, as they say on the Isle of Man. They have their own special celebration for, for today. But yet for this special one, we're looking at Hammer's proto-folk horror, Nigel Neal scripted The Witches, with uh, a very special guest who is what well, is easily described as a as a as a writer and an actor. But I like to think of him as a one-man uh, horror canon of Britain. Uh, Jonathan Rigby. Jonathan, welcome. Uh, welcome to you. Well, well you're welcoming me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's delightful to be here. It is, yes. Um, these are two of my absolute favourite books in, uh, oh. in horror graphics. So, uh, English Gothic, Euro Gothic, and of course American American Gothic are um, indispensable guides, uh, which uh, which John which John John Jonathan has written. Um, in English Gothic one doesn't cover the witches all too much, which for reasons I suspect will. We'll discuss. That's weird. That's weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we will discuss that. Yes, yeah. So, um, The Witches, it's not your normal hammer fare, at least by 1966, is it? Where does this story come from as far as hammer are concerned? Well, it, uh, I think it really originates from, the, well, there are various forces that bring this film about. One of them, I think, was um, the sort of hammer old guard were very susceptible to old time stars. Uh, they were rather in their thrall. And so in fact, the year after this film was made in 1967, they, they actually want to cast, I seem to remember, Charles Boyer as the Duc de Richelieu in The Devil Rides Out, which, would upset Christopher Lee if he ever knew, which I don't think he ever did, because he brought that project to them. And yet their reverence for old Hollywood movie stars was such that they would have preferred Charles Boyer. Here, of course, they had Joan Fontaine as part of the package. In fact, she was an essential part of the package because she had bought the rights to Nora Loft's novel in, I think it was September 1962. But something else that happened in September 1962 was that um, a film called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane had recently wrapped shooting. And uh, it went on release with incredible speed. I think it was on release by October 62. And um, this film changed the horror landscape or at least uh, created a new subgenre, if you like, uh, in horror films. Uh, an awful lot of... Um, rather nasty and misogynistic handles have been applied to this subgenre. But what it basically involves is old time female stars finding a new lease of life in Grand Guignol subjects. And there's a kind of slightly prurient interest 
particularly where Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are concerned, a slightly prurient interest in the fact that these stars of yesteryear are now revealed to be women in their 50s. And, and back in the 1960s, that alone was, you know, a source of, of rather, as I say, a rather prurient fascination. And on top of that, of course, they're involved in a rather nasty Grongignol story. And um, so this actually triggers off a, a whole bunch of other old-time female stars um, getting into horror subjects. In fact, Joan Fontaine's elder sister, Olivia de Havilland, by I think February 63, is doing a film called Lady in a Cage, which would become very controversial, particularly in this country. Um, and of course, Joan Crawford then does Straight Jacket by herself and Betty Davis does Dead Ringer. But there comes a moment when this subgenre transfers, <clears throat> excuse me, temporarily to Britain and into colour. And uh, what do you know, it's Hammer who bring this about because they get Tallulah Bankhead over in 1964 to do a film called Fanatic. So when via one of their American partners, Seven Arts, um, Joan Fontaine's acquisition of the North, the Devil's Own is brought to their attention, they're um, immediately interested. So the, there are two things, as I say, at play here. They're kind of rather forelock-tugging obeisance to old-time 1940s stars, and the fact that these old-time 1940s stars are now, now have currency in the genre in which Hammer, of course, excel. And so they're very happy to put Tallulah Bankhead into Fanatic, and then in 1965, they put Betty Davis into The Nanny. And so what could be more natural in 1966 to finally uh, produce The Devil's Own, or The Witches, as it was known in the UK? Um, so I think that's really what brought it about. I'm not quite sure why Joan Fontaine imagined that the novel um, by Nora Lofts, who, by the way, wrote it under one of her pen names, Peter Curtis. I'm not quite sure why she thought this would be such a surefire, you know, sort of comeback movie, because Miss Mayfield in the novel and the film is... Um, it's not a very it's not a very meaty role. She's a, she's she's quite passive certainly until the end of the novel, and um, and of course there are all these colourful characters that she comes into contact with in the uh, English uh, home counties village to which she's sent, uh, who you know I think one could have predicted that they would um, rather sort of swerve the spotlight away from the actual protagonist. Um, so. And indeed, I think there was some tension on this very topic uh, while the film was being shot, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Kay Walsh, who played the far more interesting and colourful character of Stephanie Bax. Now, I'm assuming that the people listening here have seen The Witches because we can't really discuss it in any huge detail unless we throw in some spoilers. So can we establish yeah. that? I, 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 we're going to know that in, in all stories that we that, that we talk about, we we spoil it away because if you haven't spoil seen, away. you okay. haven't seen a film that came out in 1967 anyway. I don't really think there's too many uh, reasons as to, yeah. as to as to hold as to hold back. Not that there's a huge a huge amount of uh, unexpected that that, that, that that takes place, uh, but no. Well, 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 Joan Fontaine herself anticipated that the developments would be unexpected because like a lot of, of big name stars who become involved in horror films and indeed big name directors who become involved in horror films, she was actually quite keen to emphasize that it wasn't really a horror film. Mm. In fact, I think she was quoted as calling it a detective story rather than straight horror. So that was her get out clause there. 
Do we know that, um, that Joe Fontaine was just a fan of the novel or a fan of the writer uh, rather than the book and rights on that basis? Or? I, I honestly I don't know. She must, I mean, the, the book came out in 1960 mm. and um, she must have read it after it came out and obviously was very taken by it. Um, the book, of course, as books could be in those days, uh, the book is actually somewhat more explicit, particularly at the end where the, when, the, when the diabolical rituals actually take place. The book, of course, is, is actually quite a bit more explicit than the film could be. So the fact that it is a horror story is um, pretty plain from reading the book, but nevertheless, she felt moved to, to buy the screenwrites. This is often a thing, though, isn't it? The way that people, um, the way that people really, really don't want to have their thing being part of that nasty little thing called genre. Yes, as well. exactly. Um, well, it's worth. It's probably worth now having a synopsis, so that the few people who don't know what we're talking about um, have vague sort of structure. Yeah, is, sure, of course, so, yeah. Sure, so, do you want to do it, Howard, or do you want me to? I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So, um, Joe Fontaine is, plays Miss Mayfield. She was a missionary in Africa. In the pre-credit sequence, she is given a most frightful scare by an African witch doctor and his henchmen, and um, winds up back in England, traumatised by African witchcraft. She gets a job as the headmistress of a village school in a town called Hedeby. And she's hired by a man in a vicar's dog collar named Alan Bax, who turns out not to be a vicar, but a slightly creepy guy cosplaying a vicar. Um, except, of course, he's posh, so actually he's eccentric and not creepy. Anyway, um, she discovers that there are odd beliefs about witchcraft in the village. Um, and with the aid, so she thinks, of Alan Bax's sister, Stephanie, a well-respected columnist for Sunday's newspapers, goes on a hunt to try and get to the bottom of the witchcraft that is going on in the village of Hedeby. But who can be trusted? Who, who's, who's involved? Who isn't involved? Who's in danger? Who isn't in danger? And that's basically, it goes from there, doesn't it, really? It's a it's 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 it, it's a it's a pagan village conspiracy with basically that's run by Alison Pearson. That's if you can imagine it that, that way. <laughs> she is that kind of. Uh, she is that kind of. Uh, yeah, the impression she's the kind of um, sort of Sunday uh, supplement columnist who who is controversial for the sake of it. Indeed, yeah. indeed, yeah. So um, the reason this this story falls under the purvey of of, of Bergcast is uh, Hammer turned to Nigel Neal for 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 the adaptation. Now, as this would be shortly before uh, the long-awaited adaptation of Quatermass and the Pit, mm. was there any sort of sweetener uh, for, for Neil to do this script while waiting for, for, for Pit, which presumably had been in production, or had been in had been limbo, awaiting production for some time? Well, um, well, he, his motivation for writing the script, as he told Marcus Hearn, good Lord, 25 years ago now, was um, probably a need for money as he put it. Um, he had in fact, which is not unusual, fairly standard, he had in fact completed the screenplay for Quatermass and the Pit back in March 1964. Uh, as we know, the film took a while to uh, actually get made. It didn't go, on, didn't go on the floor until February 67, I think. But in between uh, those two dates, he actually delivered his script for the witches on the uh, 19th of August 1965, which was quite a 
quite a few months before it uh, actually got, got started shooting, which was in April 66. So um, I don't know whether, uh, whether he wanted to keep in with Hammer to just to keep the wheels oiled regarding the ongoing project of Quatermass in the Pit or whether he just needed the money. He, um, he read the novel and um, uh, he said that it was um, all right up to a point, was his uh, not very enthused estimate. <laughs> as we know, Nigel Neal could be quite a, quite a bit of a curmudgeon, particularly as the years wore on, and his estimate of the novel was it was all right up to a point. And of course, this is particularly interesting, given the uh, rural Gothic umbrella here. Uh, the interesting part about it for him, he said, was the very ordinary seeming country setting with all its double meanings and sinister things popping through occasionally. So uh, that was what attracted him to it. Uh, when, um, sorry, go, go, go. Oh, no, that's, uh, that's, I mean, it, it, I think really in a, in, a, in a way it was a, it was a, a bit of a perfect fit really for Nigel Neal. Um, I mean, you, we think of the Quatermass stories, I, I guess, as being predominantly rather, rather urban with strange, weird reverberations from the ancient past um, rippling through them. But the fact that uh, here he was transplanted to uh, picture perfect, very twee um, English village. I, I think you know. I think the the two those two different settings actually, you know, it's, it's really neither here nor there because the same concerns flow through the stories, and I think they are quite I identifiably Nigel Neal. He put his own stamp on this project in quite a few ways. I think, particularly, well, obviously, in the way that he adapted the novel, which had to be quite radical, obviously, because. It's quite a long novel and, and, you know, just 91 minutes of film was required. When he was interviewed uh, for his biography by um, Andy yeah. Murray with a, um, uh, with a distinct uh, lack of either particular detail or indeed attention to, to facts, uh, Neil said, the, the woman who wrote the book I don't think had written very much before, which is demonstrably untrue. Um, oh okay. Yes, she knew very little about witches or anybody else. It was a cheap little thing which they shot down in Bray, apart from that rather extensive, which is true, but that, there was quite a lot of extensive location work. Uh, Joan Fontaine had faded a bit as a star. She was good in it. It was a weirdly sinister film. I was perfectly happy with it. Well, it was all right. <laughs> um, he's, okay. quite, he's quite dismissive of the author who was, you know, she was a fairly well-known author in her day. The, uh, she was a very big name. Of historical novels um, and a, a decent side project in murder mystery, but yeah, not something yeah. That, had, that had covered been covered. Well, by I think by she was on my grandparents' my... bookshelf, certainly. Yes, I'm sure she was. Yeah, quite a lot of people's grandparents' bookshelves, I would think. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid Nigel had either forgotten mm. or was just um, grievously misinformed at the time, because yes, Nora Lofts was a big name. In fact, she was a big enough name to to take on different names when writing novels that were slightly out of a usual historical romance type, um, you know, vein. Hence calling herself Peter Curtis for The Devil's Own. Um, yeah, it's, um, I, I have to say, I've just had a quick skim through it uh, this week, but I haven't, I didn't properly, I've properly read it about 30 odd years ago. It's, um, it's 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 not as um, well. It's certainly not as streamlined as the film, and and there are some significant differences. But she does show an absolute commitment to horror, particularly in the final stretches where the, the rituals begin. Um, so I, th I think Nigel Neal will have spotted 
quite fertile material. He may not have had a very high opinion of it, but I'm sure he felt that he could um, elevate it and, and, and twist it to his own uh, interests in, in certain respects. I've, um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the, the climax is, uh, is, is, is well done in the novel. I've seen uh, the world's saddest orgy referred to to the climax of the film. <laughs> well, I, yeah, well, we can, we can discuss that perhaps um, a, a little later, but uh, I, I, think, I think excuses can be made for that, uh, the rituals at the end. Very well. Howard, did you, Howard, you, you made a comment to me before when we were discussing uh, what to talk about, about um, what you took from the dialogue and particularly how you could start to see Nigel Neal putting his, putting his stamp on this film. Yeah, so um, Nigel Neal, um, one of the things that we've noticed taking a very deep dive over the last year or so into Nigel Neal's work is that you sort of see a development, obviously, in his style of writing. He wasn't static, obviously, and around the sort of late 60s, early 70s, you sort of see a way in which Nigel Neal constructs dramatic scenes. And he is, and also I learned a new word this last week, which I was really excited about. And this word is stickamythia, which is specifically, yeah, stickamythia, it's a fantastic word. And it comes from Greek tragedy. But specifically, it is the use of quick fire exchanges to raise tension in dialogue. Yes. Which is a very Nigel Neal thing. And one of the things that I noted in watching The Witches, when I watched it for the first time a few weeks ago and then watched it again this week, um, was that you have these very Nigel Neal-style quickfire exchanges, but they're delivered by people who don't really know what to do with them. It's like, I think Joan, Joan Fontaine, he's got this very sort of, it's a very contemporary way of doing dialogue. So when you get a play like Murren, for instance, which is a personal favourite of mine, as you, as everybody probably yeah. knows, but Murren has yeah. that wonderful scene where he's talking about the witch and you know they killed the cat and all that sort of thing, and it goes boom, 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 and then there's sort of like a, a lengthy line, and then it's boom, 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 and it sort of raises, raises, raises the tension until the guy says, "We don't go back," and you see these exchanges but they're weirdly truncated i think in the witches i am trying to think of a specific scene now but there are these exchanges sort of like go back and forth but maybe it's the director maybe it's the performers there's a lot of people who i've got this nigel neal script but they're not making it like a nigel neal production if that makes sense yes then no, that's interesting that's an interesting point actually i think um I think uh, Joan Fontaine herself, no disrespect to her, but yeah, Joan Fontaine herself and the director, Cyril Frankel, may not have been very simpatico with that sort of, mm. that, that rhythm that you, you mentioned that yeah. um, Neil imposes on his dialogue. It's the kind of rhythm that with just one well-placed line can sort of, you know, loosen your bowels in a way, can't you? Exactly, with the implications, yeah. the implications of what has just been said. Yes. And I don't think... I don't think Cyril or Joan were really um, attuned to that, shall we say. It's very interesting, you know, you go back to the Hammer films that, um, uh, Hammer, the Hammer films based on Nigel Neal stories from the 50s, all of which were directed by Val Guest. And of course, Nigel Neal had a very combative, um, rather stormy relationship with Val Guest. Uh, and yet I think Val Guest uh, had that down, you know, I think he understood yeah. 
how rhythmically this stuff should be done. I mean, you know, he actually co-scripted some of those film versions, but, but he understood that, as you say, the, the sort of rapid tensioning of the dialogue. Uh, but there's a kind of, I think The Witches, uh, I'll lay my cards on the table. I think it's a much more interesting film than I thought it was 20 years ago. Well, it's actually over 20 years ago that I wrote that, you know, that book, English Gothic. Um, and I gave it a bit more of a shout out in a 2015 update of English Gothic uh, because I was aware that my treatment of the film had been a bit uh, dismissive. Uh, whether you think the film is good or bad, I, I felt that it did deserve a bit more discussion. What I would say now about The Witches, having seen it well, twice this week, is that it's, um, it's, it's, it's a film that doesn't work quite. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I agree. But it, is, yeah. it is awfully interesting. But one of the things, you see, one of the troubles is what, what attracted me, I gave that quote of his earlier, what attracted him to it was the, the twee picture-perfect English village with the uh, horrible reverberations underneath that would occasionally peep through and then, you know, would reach critical mass at the end. But the, the tweeness of the setting uh, rather takes over in this film. Uh, they, they, um, they shot it in a Buckinghamshire village called Hambledon, um, yes. which as well as subsequently appearing in a British horror film called The Legacy, and also, would you believe it, in a Lucio Fulci um, horror film called Black Cat, also has appeared in a great many episodes of Midsummer Murders. Of and course. I have actually, I have actually seen *Midsummer Murders* referred to in critiques of this film, uh, but they're referring to it there in terms of the sort of atmosphere of *Midsummer Murders*. And I think um, the tweeness of the setting is laid on so thick in this film that the supernatural stuff actually struggles to express itself. Having said that, there are still some very creepy and, and sinister moments in it. But I think a director who is a bit more attuned to this stuff um, would have, uh, you know, brought that out better. Cyril Frankel was, um, I believe, he was personally selected by Joan Fontaine. They had a kind ah, of, okay. they, they had a kind of platonic love affair. I've often speculated as, as to whether he was selected for this film because he was well known for directing children very well. He'd become, uh, he'd actually. Um, what was it? It's, it's great to be young, a 1956 film set in a school with John Mills oh, as a music right. teacher. And in that he directed young actors like Richard O'Sullivan and Jeremy Spencer and Carol Shelley. And so he'd acquired from that film a reputation for directing children, which is why Hammer chose him in 1959 to direct a potentially very controversial film called Never Take Sweets from a Stranger, which dealt with uh, paedophilia, among other things. And of course, there were some very important children's roles in that. So I assume that because this, after all, involves a school teacher and a village school with quite a lot of children milling about and two, actually two specifically sort of kind of lead characters were who are teenagers anyway, I assume that was why he was selected. It may have been why Hammer were happy, shall I put it, with Joan Fontaine's choice of Cyril Frankel, because I believe she chose him. And they, they, they remained fast friends for, for decades and decades, and he, he directed her in theatre and stuff, and they were bosom buddies, particularly after this film. Shall but we? Um, oh, not necessarily, but he wasn't necessarily quite the right man for this no. subject. And he did so, actually, they threw in a kind of orgy at the end and I wasn't very happy with that. So, <laughs> so at this point, um, since we're about halfway through the podcast, um, Ooh, I thought it was a good, really good. good time to like show everyone a clip from The Witches oh, so we can okay. sort of see Joan Fontaine in action. Um, as as um, 
Miss Mayfield. Look at this. Dark full of pens and its head missing. What do you think it could possibly be? Witchcraft? Mm. Somebody having a little dabble? Yes, I would think so. Oh, did you think I was going to say, no, 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 it can't happen here? I bet there are lots of remote spots where remnants of witchcraft are still practiced. Places like Hedeby, in fact. I've often wondered. Well, what are we going to do? Do? Ah. Well, I'd like to start by removing those pins. Yes, we could. Oh, no. Emphatically not. Do you see why? Well, that would mean admitting belief in it all. Ourselves, I mean. Oh, I see. I did some articles on witches once. No, not witches, damn them. People who thought they were witches. The psychology of it. It's a sex thing deep down, of course. Mostly women go in for it. Older women. Like, uh, Mrs. Rigg, for instance. Yes. They relish the idea of a secret power, especially when their normal powers are failing. Now, they may believe in it. The point is, do we? What are we giving in to if we admit the possibility that a healthy young kid can be put in hospital by mere ill will? Now, that's where it gets fascinating. I see what we admit we believe and what we believe, I suppose, could destroy us. Oh, beautifully put. So, yeah, it's very stagey, isn't it? It's yes, but I must say, that's a lovely little stretch of dialogue yeah. there. And I think particularly Stephanie Beck's saying, uh, somebody having a little dabble? Mm. <laughs> I think that's a very Nigel Neal line. And then, of course, um, again, this is a spoiler, but, of course, the fact that she says, oh, damn them, they're ridiculous, you know, and it's all it's all a sex thing deep down. And she, But, of course, the fact she is actually the leader of the local coven, so she, there's a bit of projection going on there in which she damns them all to hell, as it were. Mm. Uh, it's deeply hypocritical, shall we say, but it, it's, it's, it's a lovely, lovely scene. She is prefigures there, Lord Summerisle, I think, in a lot of ways, in that she's more rational she than the people she leads, and she's paternalistic in a sort of feudal kind of way. Yes, well, actually, she pre it's very interesting. She does prefigure Lord Summerisle in certain respects, um, in that she is actually a very hammer horror figure. She actually reminds me very much of... Um, a character from a film made the previous year by Hammer called The Plague of the Zombies. She's very like a character called Squire Hamilton. She is the supercilious aristocrat who is exploiting the villagers for her own ends. Uh, and, you know, the fact that Hammer really excelled with human monsters, I think, uh, rather than, you know, traditional deformed monsters. Um, and very often those human monsters were aristocrats so and she effectively is an aristocrat she's the rich woman whose uh, family has effectively run the village for centuries and of course that is exactly the case with lord summerall too isn't it in, in in the wicker man yeah that, that that's very interesting there was a um kay walsh um who i think runs away with this film as really? villains as villains so often do and which joan fontaine really ought to have realized before going in but um kay walsh is is marvelous in this film but i believe there was a fair amount of mutual loathing between her and joan fontaine she resented <laughs> the fact that she resented the fact that Cyril Frankel favoured Joan with lots of Hollywood beauty lighting. She thought it was all diva-ish nonsense. And uh, I, I, I get the impression that Kay Walsh really rather hated Joan Fontaine. And uh, curious enough, a few years later, she made a film with Betty Davis called Connecting Rooms, and apparently exactly the same situation arose there. Oh, sure. uh, but the, this, um, this uh, mutual uh, distrust, apparently they got to the stage where they were 
talking through the director saying, would you tell Miss Walsh that I would like to, or would you tell Miss Fontaine that I would like to walk left in this? But it got to that level. But I think that um, tension in a kind of subtextual way actually helps the film. Because, you know, um, Stephanie Bax is all sweetness and light for most of the time, but there's something bubbling under there and you can't quite put your finger on it. She, I mean, she and she does run away with the film. She just purrs oh, yes. through the dialogue. The way she goes, yes. like that, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Um, Joan Fontaine, by all accounts, had a bit of a reputation for being a diva. Um, I, I read an interview with um, Olivia Havilland, who her sister, who oh. apparently had a decades-long feud with her, and when interviewed about it after, after her death, said, "I never had a feud with her. She had a feud with me." Uh, yes. Well, of course, that, that sisterly feud was um, notorious, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, by comparison to some of the big Hollywood names uh, Hammer would import, um, Joan was reasonably uh, reasonably access, um, accommodating, I believe, that the, right. film finished on, the film finished on time, you know, she didn't create any delays. But as far as Kay Walsh was concerned, who was from a different tradition, she was from a British screen and stage tradition. You know, she played Nancy in David Lean's Oliver Twist back in the late right. 40s. In fact, she was married to David Lean at that time. Uh, she, she was from a quite different tradition to Joan Fontaine. And I think this is one of the when I say that the film is too twee, I'm afraid, I hate to sound like I'm a, a Joan Fontaine basher because, you know, I love to watch her in Hitchcock's Suspicion or um, Max Offels' Letter from an Unknown Woman. I mean, you know, she, she was radiant. But by 1966, she's clearly coming from a different, slightly old-fashioned tradition. And I think yes. some, of the British, some of the British actors in this film give slightly overdrawn performances. But nevertheless, by and large, the British actors in this film are much more modern. I mean, you see Kay Walsh, I think there's one point, you see, there's, there's one point where Kay Walsh's character says, maybe you could become a journalist too, you know, I might be able to arrange it for you. And of course, Joan Fontaine's character, Miss Mayfield, has to think, oh no, I couldn't possibly um, be a journalist. Oh, good Lord, may there actually be a possibility that I could be a journalist? And then finally, good Lord, and this woman could make it happen, could act. So she has three distinct sort of emotions and she play with her face, Joan Fontaine, if you look at the scene carefully, with her face, Joan Fontaine plays each of those three emotions with a facial expression. I and Cyril Frankel- about to say about the face acting, so yeah. Her, that he just focuses on her throughout these slightly uh, over-egged facial expressions. We, we, you know, she, she passes through all these emotions with us, with a, with a, and and it looks old-fashioned relative to the. Uh, they may not appear very modern now, but certainly in the mid '60s, those were modern British actors. I mean, for instance, Alec McCowan, who plays Stephanie Bax's rather weird. You mentioned him before, rather weird brother who turns out not to be a vicar at all, just to pretending to be one. But nevertheless, there's a very... He doesn't have much to work on, Alec McCann, but there's a very wonderful uh, performance where everything comes out through his eyes and he suggests all sorts by doing almost nothing. And that's absolutely uh, the opposite to what Joan is doing, which is, I think, act, we, we actors call it demonstrating. Yes. Yeah. Do you think the, di the dialogue there that we saw in the clip, which talks about um, the attractiveness to, for, of witchcraft for older women who are uh, seeing their powers failing, and I assume their powers failing in that mo most misogynistic of ways means uh, their powers of sexual attraction. Is, does that come from the book or does that, is, that, is, is that an input from Neil? 
I I think, as I say, I only flipped through the book this this week, but mm. I think Neil put had a lot of input into that stuff. And uh, yes, I, I think, again, that's Stephanie Back's kind of projecting, isn't it? She's offering a rationale for why women, apparently, and apparently, particularly older women, yeah. are attracted to this stuff. And she's, she's basically... Um, She's basically telling Miss um, Mayfield why she's doing what she's doing, <laughs> while not admitting to doing it yet. Um, yes, I, th I think Neil added a lot. As far as I can tell, Neil, of course, also added the wonderful doggerel that um, that uh, Stephanie Beck's quotes. Um, what is it? Um, get me a, no no cut me a robe from toe to lobe give me a skin oh, yes. dancing in which of course seems yes. to me to predate the uh, huffety puffety ringstone round mm. stuff in the, yes. the 1978 Quatermass um, revival thinking of um, hammers being enthralled to old-timey stars I can't help yeah. thinking of the episode of beasts the dummy where one of the minor oh, yeah. plot points is, in fact, there's like this old guy who's clearly playing the bishop or something, and he's a, he's <laughs> he, he's a well-known star of yesteryear who is there, and he's going to go home at four o'clock, no matter whether there's a murder happening in the studio or anything, and he's just <laughs> sort of there. He's, he's you know he's there to deliver five lines, and then he's going home because he's a great great actor of the thirties or something. And <laughs> yeah, well, of course, when he wrote um, the dummy, I think uh, well, of course, Neil was very very uh, cynical and dyspeptic about horror generally wasn't he he didn't like to be pigeonholed yes. did he didn't no no, no indeed no. science fiction or horror and uh, and in the dummy i think he was to a degree sending up the british horror tradition which which oddly enough in 1976 at that time was actually dead on its feet more or less yes. um, but he was he was sending it up and obviously his experiences with hammer will have informed that he he had a very um, jaundiced view of hammer he felt that their ladling on of kensington gore was very boring and unsubtle um but of course he was in a strange he was locked in a strange symbiotic kind of relationship with them wasn't he because without hammer uh it's possible well we might be talking about him today but I, we might not be you know because quite a lot of the telly stuff simply isn't available to see uh, particularly yes. the stuff that hammer adapted uh, you know you can't see the creature but you can see the abominable snowman so i think and i think as artists often do he may have resented the fact that he was so much a bedfellow of of what he considered to be you know gore-mongers <laughs> i think that i think that might explain his um, his curmudgeonness to a degree i saw someone recently i read said that he actually acquired a second career in the 1980s rubbishing the quatermass films that were made <laughs> and i thought that was putting it a bit strong but he did go on and on about it didn't he rather and of course they're marvelous films nigel you know. And and for the, and for the vast majority, well, not vast majority, but for a large number of people, the Hammer Quatermass and the Pit film is how you discover Nigel Neal. It's certainly yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, so I discovered actually that was that was a key question I didn't actually ask you at the start, as we normally do with podcast with with this podcast, Jonathan. How did you first first encounter the work of, of Nigel Neal? Well, I think um, I think it must have been the the, the Quatermass films, yeah. possibly actually Quatermass in the Pit. I, I, I can't actually yes. remember because, you know, to, to quite a few people, the, the sort of Elstree colourfulness of Quatermass in the Pit comes as a disappointment after the... Um, 
Irish black and white of the 50s films. But for those of us who saw Quatermass in the Pit first, you have to sort of wind back and, and those new Irish 50s films come as a bit of a surprise. But I think in their different mm -hmm. ways, they're, they're all marvellous films. And, uh, you know, particularly where the Quatermass experiment is concerned, it's essentially all that really survives in any, you know, kind of complete form. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Nigel Neal's um, Disenchantment with Hammer may have been based on the fact that he was kind of stuck with them, wasn't he? He was kind of lashed with them to the mast, as it were, and, and they couldn't they they couldn't get away from each other. Anyway, so when did you first see the witches? Do you remember? Did you seek it out, or was it just something you would see on on a repeat? Or oh well, when well well when I when I became interested in horror films, which was when I was ten or thereabouts. Um, you know, I just watched everything that came up on the telly. And uh, I don't remember specifically when it did, but I'm pretty sure I will have seen The Witches probably in the late-ish 70s. I think back then, um, I probably will have found the film rather disappointing. I mean, I think it is a disappointing film, but I think I will have found it a disappointing film from the kind of uh, chap who's only about 12 or something and wants to see, you know, lots of uh, hammer-type you know, monsters and, 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 you know, blood and all the rest of it. Although I must say the opening of the film uh, in Africa is is realized in, in really in the classic Hammer tradition. Mm. It's, it's very yes. melodramatic, terribly exciting, I think, with the fetish suddenly appearing stuck into the table and then that- And the sound, the sound of the drums. The sound, some, something yes, the sound of the drums yeah, yeah, yeah. and that tremendous thing that looms through the doorway. And then the terrible, the scream goes up mm. and then this is a classic Hammer tactic, the red plumed, um, you know, kind of hellish smoke wafts up and, and you're into the credits a very very exciting stuff after that however yeah for, for a 12 year old i think it's not a terribly exciting film but um i think there's there's a there's a lot to i think there's there's a lot about it that's very um very interesting one thing that as far as i can tell neil added was he added the whole business of alan backs being a phony vicar uh and he yeah, uh, I must say it's not developed very much, but he yeah. added it. And he also added um, the derelict church. Is that, uh, a no is that no in, the, in the novel, is that a, a normal church or just outside? Or is it no, in the novel, um, the character Isabel Thorby, who becomes Stephanie Banks in the film, mm. the character Isabel Thorby actually uh, sort of shepherds all the villagers, or the ones who are under her control anyway, into her own brother's um, actual church. And so, so there's lots of sacrilegious parodies of Christian ritual involved. And in fact, I think Neil might have had to revise his script and actually incorporate the, the business that the church was deconsecrated, not just deconsecrated, it was in ruins. Yeah. He might have had to add all that because the British Board of Film Censors were very, very liverish about at this time about representations of Satanism. And they actually oh, said yeah. when they looked at his draft script for the Devil's Own, as it was called, that we would not be willing to accept any misuse of Christian emblems or any parodies of Christian prayer. And indeed, what Miss Mayfield talks about in the book is the fact that the, the, what the Satanists in the, the village are doing is uh, specifically a Christian parody. So it may have been that Neil had to go back once Hammer had been given a flea in their ear by the British Board of Film Censors. I'm not sure how that worked. But of course, 
the witches does actually occupy a very interesting place in the representation of Satanism, if you like to call it that, because in 1964, Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death had come out. And that's a film that he shot in Britain, as it happens. Yeah. It was a half British film, if you like. Uh, and of course, based on Edgar Allan Poe, but there was a very long satanic sequence in that, a dream sequence. Uh, and uh, the British Board of Film Censors just removed it. And of course, so Hammer in the meantime were thinking of making a film of Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out. And they must have been aware of this and thought, oh my God, what are we going to do? Uh, the Witches was, was dipping a toe in the water. Uh, and then the following year, of course, they finally did make The Devil Rides Out. Uh, and they were showing stuff in The Devil Rides Out, very tame though it appears today. They were showing stuff that just two years before the British Board of Film Censors wouldn't have allowed them to do. And in a way, The Witches was a bit of a test case in between the Mask of the Red Death and The Devil Rides Out. So it has short thin ends of the wedge. Yeah, if you like. And I think um, it has, it does have, um, it does have significance as a, of an early example of uh, folk horror. Um, the, the, the derelict church is a direct link to um, the Wicker Man, isn't it? I think. Mm. Yes. Interesting it seems so. And fascinatingly enough, the derelict church itself in the film was um, a, a location, uh, was, it was a derelict church in Bix Bottom <laughs> near Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire. And would you believe it, the very same derelict church is the site of the rituals uh, in Blood on Satan's Claw, which was made in 1970, the very same location. And would you believe wow. it, they have one of the very same celebrants in the church, Michelle de Trice. Michelle de Trice, yes. Blood on Satan's Claw. So, so in all sorts of weird, funny, detailed ways like that, it's a progenitor of folk horror. But I think, I think the actual story and the thrust of it makes it quite apart from those funny little coincidences. I think makes it very definitely a, a folk horror item. For instance, I, Howard, when you for Howard, when you were giving the um, the little um, uh, synopsis there, um, people who know their folk horror very well may well have thought, oh, this reminds me a bit of Robin Redbreast, the John Bowen play for today that came along in 1970, you know, the, the sort of, yep. you know, the Naked woman. village conspiracy. Yeah, a village conspiracy, and it's a woman that's, uh, you know, caught in the clutches of it, you know, all that. So, uh, yeah, I think it, there's very, that very much, um, very, it is very, I think it's very much a, a folk horror piece. The, Tweeness of the location is quite interesting because um, you mentioned obviously the Hambledon was also used in Fulci's Black Cat as well as Midsummer. And if you've ever seen Lucio Fulci's Black Cat, the idea of um, an area of England where everybody speaks Italian, obviously, um, unless you're watching the English dub, but um, <laughs> has it, and it is very, it's very, very odd in that essentially. England becomes to Italy what Transylvania is to England in a lot of ways. Uh, and that sort yeah, of Buckinghamshire, yeah. that area of Buckinghamshire is the idea of, is basically a foreigner's idea of what England is like, isn't yeah. it? It's sort of very much that sort of ideal of England. And, and would you say that works in the film's favour or against it? Well, I think as, as far as um, Italians and, you know, whoever else identifying 
England, particularly home counties England, as a kind of locus of old-time Gothic horror. Well, I'm, you know, I think Hammer had a great deal to do with that identification. Right. And uh, you know, this and the, their use of the village, this particular village, is um, you know, is indicative of that. But I do think Cyril Frankel's struggles to to bring the genuine sinisterness out. There are some nice moments. I mean, when, when uh, Miss Mayfield first stumbles on the um, all the cabalistic stuff in that deserted shirt, she finds something bizarre wriggling about in a bag, a bag that's um, dressed up to look like a teenage girl, a tiny little bag. And of course, yes. it turns out to be Granny Riggs' cat. Um, and that is that is a moment straight out of the League of Gentlemen. Or well, that, re- that reminded me of um, Kill This. A, a bit. Oh yes, the, yeah. The, the, the wife in, if you, sorry, to spoil kill this at the end of the other, but the, this was the misshapen form uh, yeah. moving in, in an unusual way. And that was the first thing I uh, I, I thought. And perhaps I, I, I first saw this actually um, on the big screen because it was, I think it was about 2014 that the BFI showed it as part of London Film Festival. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 They remastered, it was a, a remaster and they showed it at Screen on the Green in, in Islington and um, I'd never seen it before, and it was. I think I improved the the, the experience by seeing it on the big screen, particularly a marvelous, mar- marvelous opening. But there's something about the rich, verdant nature that seems to detract from the atmosphere. It's so saturated in color, bright. It's so green um, that it that there's that there's something. I don't know, but perhaps the the, the way we fondly remember to the, almost to the point of fetishization of enjoying 16 millimeter creepiness on on, on 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 British television. There's something a bit too a bit too a bit too rich. Lush about it. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I must say, yes. Watching it this week, I thought you know Arthur Grant's photography is is beautiful. Actually, yeah. you know. This is when f- colour films were actually made in colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, over the last 10 years, we've been watching films made in green or grey or, or dark blue. Oh, I mean, all, t- all movies Orange. TV, I mean, TV oh, now, yes. it's just, yeah, the, uh, the grading is just down, down, down. And just to see, yeah. to see this is a, is a jump, and it's a leap you have to make because that's not how films are graded now. But that's but, yeah, but the the colour in its way, however, the, the lushness of the colour does work. It, it is put to symbolic purposes. I noticed that in um, Stephanie and Alan Bax's country house, um, all the lampshades are a very nasty shade of blood red. And um, I, I dare say this was done as a kind of, you know, a, a danger signal. Uh, Hammer were very keen on that kind of colour coding, along with Mario Bava and all sorts of other directors. And, and Arthur Grant was still doing it in 1966. And it, it, it does, it is a, a beautiful looking film, but to some degree, you're right. It is, it, it doesn't quite, when it gets to that final ritual, which I guess we have to talk about, um, it, it does finally get a bit down and dirty there. In fact, there's an appalling slop, I think, of, of worms and mud, which looks awfully like feces. And um, let's go, let's go. Pasolini and, must have seen this. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, maybe he didn't, but you know, <laughs> Stephanie Bax, you know, chucks yeah. it out for everyone to, to slather their faces in. Yeah, and you know, and they also they're slathering themselves in some strange kind of juice type stuff. And you see a couple of men slathering each other in there. Yes, there's, there's um, it's Brian Marshall, isn't it? Um, Brian Marshall like, and possibly Duncan Lamont. Lamont I'm not sure. But they writhe together. There are some transgressive details in there, and I would sort of defend the ending 
in that yes it's because yeah people laugh what was the quote you gave about uh, the the saddest satanic oh, the, ritual? The, the the saddest orgy uh, in, the saddest in, in, orgy, well, orgy well in the book they are indeed naked in that section and miss mayfield is watching on and she's very embarrassed <laughs> amongst other oh. things but not only are they naked but they they uh they start having sex and all sorts of different combinations i mean miss mayfield doesn't go she's she, miss mayfield is actually filming it on a cine camera in the wow. book uh, and then Granny rig, and then the the Granny, the type which character actually wheeze into um, into a special goblet that she's given by the Stephanie Bax character, and then they find to their horror that the water in the font is still consecrated from last Sunday. So all of them pee into the font. So it is it is quite uh, graphic, the novel. But in the film, uh, I think the comedy of that ending, and Nigel Neal was, was very dismissive of Cyril Frankel on this because he said, you know, the, the whole idea of people arsing around doing witch-type stuff is always going to be potentially funny, and a, and a better director would have been aware of that and would have circumvented it. But I think, in a way, the sadness of it is, is, is quite effective because they're, they're kind of... realness, yeah. If you use the expression, they're kind of... They're kind of they, they're kind of mummerset types yeah, who, who yeah, yeah. finally they're allowed to let their hair down and let it all hang out and they don't quite know how to do it. And and so, and, and the, the, their, their dancing is very obviously choreographed. Yeah. But then I thought, yeah. but then I thought, but yeah. then again, Stephanie Bax may well have choreographed it herself because that's what she does. She manipulates people and directs them. So, they're, they're, yeah, I, I don't think the final ritual is as much of a disaster as most people tend to. That's my little apologia, if you like. For I actually quite enjoyed it. I actually thought it yeah. was great fun. Um, I, I think it just ends, it has a bit of a damp squib of an ending, of a final climax. Uh, well, they're, they're all good, really. Now, <laughs> the, the, the moment... Yeah, it's like, uh, oh, yeah, oh, I'm just going to cut my hands and then... Well, the moment the moment K Walsh dies in slightly conveniently quick circumstances, everyone just sort of oh well, sorry. That was yeah, good. well, again, Nigel Neal made that much more dramatic because he had um, Miss Mayfield inducted into the coven against her will, which none of yeah. that is in the book. And uh, mm. in the book, the Stephanie Bax character is killed by the granny, the witch figure. Ah, okay. Uh, by there's a big punch up between two old ladies, and uh, eventually the uh, she pushes the villainess against the font and the, the the villainess's head is broken against the font very symbolic but um but yeah the the whole business of cutting her arm nigel neal added that and i think that's very very effective the fact that, that you do finally get a contest between those two uh, women you know in their 40s 50s mm. that's right. how it's, it's finally resolved but i do wonder if the final little um bit at the end where everything seems to be all sweetness and light again. I do wonder if that was imposed on Nigel Neal because it's very pat and you get the Alec McCowan character actually looking uh, sweetly at Miss Mayfield as if um, as if he's possibly thinking you know some romance might and you just think but, but he's such a creepy guy uh, yeah. and this is meant to be the guy and it, it, it doesn't it doesn't work at all. Before we continue I'd like to um uh, to express my real bone of contention with uh, Nigel Neal on this film. <laughs> he um, he changed quite a lot of the names in this film. He likes to do that okay. Yes Deborah Mayfield became Gwen Mayfield 
don't ask me why. Uh, the sacrificial girl, um, Ethel in the book became Linda. I can see why he did that. Um, and um, the um, Baxes the, uh, became, were originally the Thorbys, but the Granny Rig character, who's the person we suspect of being a witch all along, because she conforms to the standard you know, kind of idea of a witch. Granny Rig, well, can I tell you what her name was in the book? Go for it was it. Granny, Granny Rig um, in the film, but in the book, she was called Granny Rigby. Uh, and I have to say, Nigel, wow. you're happy. To, <laughs> Nigel, you're happy to include five million-year-old monstrous mantises in your films, but a Rigby was just too much to ask. Oh, Rigby was obviously okay. beyond the pale. He changed it to Granny Rig. I mean, I'm 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 shocked. I'm sorry, Nigel, but that's that's terrible. <laughs> We're kind of getting short on time now. Yes, so, we are. We yes. must be. Yes. We so, are. We've got about, we've got about yeah, five, five, five or six minutes left. Is there a key thing you wanted to cut to, Howard? No, I've, I was going to leave it to you to find okay. a key thing to cut to. Fair enough. I, just, I mean, just thinking about what one, one of the uh, things that I think most, most people take away from, from The Witches is its influence. Is it fair to say it's, it's best remembered for its potential legacy for, for, for folk horror, particularly with The Wicked Man? Yes, I think so. I think it's a film that was uh, it was ahead of its time, if you like. I, and as I, as I think we kind of all agree that it doesn't quite work. It's um, fun to watch. Uh, it looks lovely. It's got some good performances in it, but it doesn't quite work. I think its legacy is more is the most interesting thing about it, however, because yeah. it does seem, whether consciously or not, in terms of the people that came afterwards, it does seem to have had uh, an influence. Uh, very definitely. Um, it's it, it's a very interesting piece, I think. It also shares two cast members with the the Crater Mass and the Pit that would come out soon, doesn't it? And I think Duncan Lamont as the as the butcher is probably the most enjoyable of the of the of the radar. He's always laughing in that really bloody irritating way that well, people well, do. Well, not only was Duncan Lamont going to go on to play Sladden in the film of Quatermass yeah. and the Pit, but of course he played Caroon in the original, the original TV version indeed, of Quatermass yeah, yeah. yeah. Experiment mm. in 1953. Duncan Lamont was always drafted into Hammer films, I feel, to, to do that sort of sub-Sid James laugh of his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's very, very big and vulgar and boisterous, isn't he? <laughs> kind of laugh. He's, he was, that was his USP, really, wasn't mm. it? And there's that very odd moment when he first meets Miss Mayfield and he's standing outside his butcher shop and he's, quite frankly, polishing his butcher knife in a very phallic way in his apron um, as he says um, hello to her. It's all very odd. He's, a, he's I always enjoy watching Duncan Lamont. He, he could be somewhat overstated from time to time, but I always like watching him. Another interesting actress, another interesting actor in the film is Sheila Fraser, who runs the, um, the village shop. Ah, yes. She, of course, would return to Nigel Neal land in, um, well, she was playing the um, vet's wife, wasn't she? Yes, she's Stephen the... McKenna's wife in Beasts in the baby yes, episode, yes. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 There's lots of, course, of interesting actors. Yeah, yeah, forever remembered, of course, for Star Wars, but uh, yeah, she's uh, yes, particularly absolutely. Well yeah, in that. Yeah. Brian Marshall turns up in Quite a Mass in the Pit as well. He's Captain Potter, isn't he? He does, and um, yeah, he does, and uh, the, 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 quite a lot of the same actors tend to crop up in, ha yeah. in Hammer films of this period, obviously, because they tended to share casting directors, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, there, there are also um, there are also some links to The Devil Rides Out, actually. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the acting, by and large, is uh, very good. We also ought to mention that <clears throat> Martin Stevens, who plays Ronnie Dowsett, the teenage boy in it, oh, yes. uh, 
16 when this film was made, but mm. several years earlier, of course, he'd been the lead alien in Village of the Damned. And of, course of course he had, yes. In the, he played Miles, in, the, in uh, the innocence, yeah. boy in the innocence, yeah. yeah. Um, he, he gave up acting pretty soon after this, but, you know, he's very good in this too. Well matched with Ingrid Brett, who plays uh, mm. Linda. That, that's someone who um, uh, Deborah Kerr kisses for just too long. He does, yes, that's, that's, right. that's genuinely, genuinely chilling scene. And also in the making his first appearance of the uh, of his Nigel Neal career, Leonard Rossiter would turn up in Year of the Sex Olympics. Uh, that's very true. Yes. yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, only, about, just only, about, only about 18 months later, wouldn't it? Yeah, about, yeah that's yeah. true. Yes, very true. I, uh, there's a little detour there where it goes yeah. all a bit film noirish where nobody will believe the heroine and she, in fact, gets yes. put into a sanatorium, yeah, a mental yeah. home. And I, I think that detour damages the film a yeah. bit because it, momentum is, is lost, rather, at that point. And, in fact, you find out that she's been in the mental home for a year. And, and in a sort of mental way, you think, hang on, this story has just had a, a kind of big gap of a year which we've not experienced because, of course, Miss Mayfield didn't because she was effectively in a coma. And you think, uh, hang on, uh, it's a bit of a kind of break in the movie that I think Nigel Neal might have been able to patch over, but maybe didn't. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if, they'd really have, if they'd really have gone with it and things are different in the village and no one yeah. will quite believe what happened before, you could see that working. Yeah. Either do that or don't do it because, yeah, there's a exactly. break. And then when she comes back to the village, you know, Linda's about to be sacrificed as yeah. she was a year ago. Yeah. Um, which is a which is an unfortunate one as well. Nevertheless, but, uh, sorry, go. Just one other thing I'd yeah. like to mention uh, in terms of the uh, wonderful performance by Kay Walsh, Stephanie Bax, her rationale for what she wants to do, and let's remember what she wants to do is perfectly foul. It's as foul yeah. as foul can be. She wants to kill this teenage girl in order that she, that her own brilliance, uh, mental brilliance, can be projected into the twenty first century. Um, but her rationale for it, when she says, oh, she's just, a, effectively, she says, she's just a peasant. Nobody's interested in these people. Um, th that is really the rationale of the classic movie mad scientist, particularly the sort of, you know, the quasi-Nazi ones who are, you know, willing to sacrifice these mere humans for the sake of their, their experiments, if you like. And uh, yeah, that, that, that very much struck me when I saw it. She, she, it could almost have been Bella Lugosi dialogue there mm. <laughs> that she was spouting mm. about the, yes. the, lower, the lower orders. How, Drac are, how Dracula views these people. Uh, yeah. Well, again, it's that very hammer thing, which yeah. Nigel Neal very much played into here, of the aristocratic monster mm. who thinks other people are, you know, are just there to be fed upon. There was always a nice political dimension in a submerged sort of way to the hammer films, and then this is one of them. Horror is a great one for for, for such for, for seeding such such ideas. I it, think. it is, and, and Hammer was certainly yeah. in the vanguard there. Yeah. Yes. Finish on then. To finish on. Um, yeah. Why do they ask Gwen to come to the village? <laughs> um, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Alan seems to have, um, Alan Bax, the phony yeah. vicar, seems yeah. to have a phony, well, actually he calls himself a phony priest, doesn't he? Mm. Um, he has reasons of his own, and his reasons seem to be completely, um, completely kosher, if you like. They're, they're completely above board, and yet he seems to be, later on, he seems to be in league with Leonard Rossiter, who is the guy who runs that mental home, which, mm. as we've just discussed, is a bit of a problem in the film. Uh, and so it's like there's a, bit, a lot of red herrings are being chucked about in yes. a slightly arbitrary way. Or, well, not so much arbitrary, as the film doesn't really have time to sort them all out. And then at the very end, we're meant to take Alan as being quite a good sort, who rather fancies Miss Mayfield. And you see, none of that works. But, but behind 
Alan Bax, of course, is Stephanie Bax, and she presumably has her reasons for uh, employing somebody who is presumed to be mentally unstable as the school teacher. Perhaps Stephanie Bax thinks that she won't be cause any problems and, and won't, uh, you know, have the wit to see what's actually going on. I, I don't know. Again, yeah. this is another problem in the film. The, the, these things are left it's a, just a bit too shadowy mm -hmm. and, not, and not left shadowy in, in an interesting way. <laughs> I'm, I'm underwritten, possibly. No, yeah. Why specifically, Miss Mayfield? Yeah. Right. Anyway, um, I think that's just just about our time. Just to say thank to say to Jonathan Rigby, thank you very much. And if the rest of you, or audibly or not, will show your appreciation in the usual way for, for Jonathan joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you, John and Howard. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks, Jonathan. Our thanks to Jonathan and Mark Norman. Howard and I will be talking about Christmas telly in 1972 at the next Rural Gothic event on the 30th of December. Hope to see some of you there. And our thanks to all our guests this year, and to you for listening. We hope we provided some positive distraction in this most challenging of years. See you soon.